I'm sorry? That's right. You are correct, Rusty. Well, we are concluding Acts chapter 4 this morning. So you can turn to Acts chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 32 to the end of the chapter, verse 37 this morning. Before we start, though, let's have a word of prayer. Again, help us, Lord, as we start this new week and once again are together opening Your Scriptures. I pray that You will help us to uh, grapple with the truth. But Lord, I pray You will protect us from merely pursuing the facts of the matter. Help us to understand that Your Word is a sword that cuts. It cuts to the quick. It cuts between the, the joint and the marrow. It, it, it cuts all the way to our soul. And, and Lord, I pray that You will use Your Word to transform us and to enlighten us and to draw us close. Protect us from merely um, assenting to the truth. Instead, Lord, I pray that You will transform us by Your truth for Your praise and Your glory as we look at this early church and how they were transformed by Your Word and by Your Son. So glorify Yourself this morning. In Your name I pray. Amen. So we are looking at verses 32 to 37 before we actually jump in the text. If you have been following along, as well as if you've been going forward a bit, you know that verses 32 through 37, you figured it out already, is a very transitional passage. Uh, how is it transitional? Well, it's transitional in that uh, we are actually at this state of the game, if you want to call it a game, the journey, the history of this early church in Acts, we are at a transition point from a church that seems to be just exploding in growth, right? 3,000, then 5,000, and on top of that, people are being added every day to the church. So it's exploding in growth. God is glorified. People are worshiping, and you're going to see more of it here today, but the passage today sets up the transition. So it, it itself is a transition. What's it a transition from and to? Well, again, we already just talked about where we are, where we are in this storyline. But starting next week, Lord willing, we are going to see that transition complete when we get into chapter 5 and we're introduced to sin in the church for the first time. Ananias and Sapphira. What this passage does is it brings to a complete contrast righteousness versus unrighteousness. Holiness versus sinfulness. Christ-glorifying lives to self-glorifying lives. It is an amazing and stark contrast. And it's crucial that when we see these two passages, today's as well as what has taken place from chapter 1 all the way through, with next week's passage. And by the way, if I may just say this, you are going to see bits and pieces of flashes of holy living in the rest of the book of Acts. But you're also going to see a lot of unholy living the rest of the way through the book of Acts. You're going to see God working in amazing ways, the Spirit moving in amazing ways. But you're going to see opposition to the church, and you're going to see opposition in the church. And when you fold the passage that we're looking at today with the passage next week, if you fold into those two passages the, all the epistles, there's something you discover very quickly. 
And that is that in, in every book that is written to every church, you find the church seriously in problems. Seriously in error. Seriously floundering. Seriously in trouble. The anchor, it seems, over and over and over again has been cut. The rope to the anchor has been cut. And the ship is adrift. The ship that we would call the church. Now, in the midst of all that darkness and gloom, because it is, isn't it? And by the way, that's no different from the Old Testament. If you read the Old Testament at all, you know that the Old Testament is full of doom and gloom, isn't it? Is Israel in good way throughout the Old Testament, or are they in a bad way? Or to put it a different way, in general, is, the, is, is Israel in the Old Testament, is their rope or chain, use whatever term you want, connected solidly to the anchor, or is it not? It is absolutely disconnected, isn't it? When you come to the New Testament, what do you find? The general tenor of the church of the New Testament, is it connected to the anchor or is it disconnected? Or to put it a different way, is the church holding fast to its anchor or is it adrift? It is absolutely adrift. Now, if we step outside of the Old Testament and step outside of the New Testament and look at church history, could I just ask you a question? Now, most of you probably aren't students of church history, but just what you know about church history. Is the history of the church a church connected solidly to the anchor, or is it a picture, a storyline, a movie, as it were, of a church adrift and disconnected from the anchor? Adrift and disconnected, is it not? Could I just say, before we get into the text this morning, you and I are fools if we think that today's church is any different. We're fools. And it would signify, if I may put it this way, it would signify that you or I are disconnected from the anchor if you don't think that the church today is adrift and disconnected from the anchor. It always has been. There have been small little glimpses of time when it wasn't. But for the most part, in the Old Testament, Israel was adrift. For the most part, in the New Testament, which was, if you want to talk about recorded history, you're talking about about 4 B.C. through about 105 A.D., New Testament, Gospels and Epistles, adrift. For the most part. There are glimpses, right? Like we saw in chapters 1 through 4, actually 2 through 4. There are glimpses, but for the most part, that is not the case. And then from 105 A.D. to 2019, October 13th, the church has had glimpses, snapshots as it were, of being firmly connected to the anchor, but generally speaking adrift. Why do I say that? Well, before I get to why I say that, I need to say this. At the same time, what do we need to remember? And this is the encouraging part, because that was really discouraging, wasn't it? But here's, here's the encouraging part. In the midst of all that, no matter how dark it got in the Old Testament, no matter how dark it got in the New Testament, and it got pretty dark. 
No matter how dark it got throughout the church history ages from AD 105, this is after church uh, biblical recorded history, AD 105 to October 13th, 2019, there's always been some. There's always been some that have been connected firmly to the anchor. There have always been some in the church. There's always been some in Old Testament Israel. There's always been some in the New Testament era. The Old Testament, like for example with Elijah. No, there's, there's a number. Elijah, you're not alone. Was it Elijah or Elisha? I always get confused. Up on, uh, up on the mountain with the Baal prophets. Elisha. Yeah, that's what I thought. I thought it was Elijah. Sometimes I get those two confused. God, Elijah thought he was alone. And God said what? And, but how do you describe them who haven't bowed the nail to Baal? Bowed the knee to Baal? It's really important we see that. Even as dark as it was in Elijah's time, 450 who hadn't bowed their knee. That's pretty impressive. Now, it's pretty small, right? Pretty small, but there's some. There's some. You read, you read in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, and the churches are generally speaking, except for one church, they're a train wreck. Various stages of, of, of coming off the rails, but they're, cha- they're train wrecks, right? But in every one, he talks about there are some, except for the Thyatira church. He talks about there are some who have remained faithful. But generally speaking, what do we have? We have train wrecks. We have people, I just changed the metaphor, of course. We have, we have coming shipwrecks. Let's stay with the same metaphor. We have coming shipwrecks. Because why? Because a ship is adrift. It's disconnected from the anchor. The point of Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to, to, to 37, is to show the contrast between people connected to the anchor, as it were, Jesus Christ, and people adrift. And it's a stunning contrast. We're going to see the disconnect next week. Today we see the, con- the, the, the connect. And it's a beautiful thing. But again, we need to remember as we wrestle with chapter 4, the end of chapter 4, we need to be reminded that the tenor of the church has not been chapter 4. Or a better way to put it, the tenor of the church has not been chapter 2 through 4. That is definitely not the tenor. The tenor is 5. And the challenge of 2 through 4 and then 5 and following is to, to be challenged with asking ourselves, who am I? Am I anchored or am I not? Is Christ my anchor or is He not? That's the challenge of this text. Let's, le- let's read the text, and then we will spend our time working our way through it. Now, starting verse 32, Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, 
and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who, is also, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a na- native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. There's our text this morning. There's a number of very interesting statements, and believe it or not, it seems like a pretty straightforward text, and it is a straightforward text, but there is all sorts of of nuanced ideas that are being presented throughout this text that we need to recognize. We're kind of kind of breeze through them and try to see them in light of that general overview of this is a description of a church whose anchor is in Jesus, a church who's enthralled with Jesus Christ, a church who is captivated by the by the Redeemer. Good morning. We are in chapter four of Acts, verses thirty two to thirty seven. Just fair to let you know. So let's just start in verse 32 and start recognizing, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on each point, but we need to see them. Verse 32, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Let that marinate in your thinking for a little bit. Just let it marinate for a second. And I'm just going to be quiet and think about it. And let me ask you a question. And please feel free to dialogue. What kind of struck you by that opening phrase in verse 32? Anything? It's not the first time it showed up. It actually shows up in chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. But what kind of struck you here? Anybody? Okay, what do you mean? Expand on that, Jim. Okay. Good, I didn't think about that. Excellent. The full number. It, it, those who were supposed to be saved were saved. Excellent. I like that. That's good. What else? I'm sorry? Okay. It excludes those who didn't believe. What else? Okay. 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 This, this, this is part one of two parts that is striking to me. It, as, what translation do you have again? Holman? Holman. The multitude... Of those who are together. Now, I want you to think about this. This whole early church has only been going on for a couple of weeks at best, right? Maybe less. At this point in time, it could very well be less than a few weeks. So we know 5,000 were saved, 3,000 were saved, and others were being added daily. Correct? Let's assume, for sake of discussion, that the vast majority of those people are still where? In Jerusalem. Especially when you figure that most of them probably resided in Jerusalem originally anyway. That's where the home were. We're talking, there are maybe 8,000 plus people gathering together here. Now, it could well be, people debate on whether everybody's gathering in one spot or if they're gathering together in certain people's homes. My theory is that they're all gathering together in the temple on the Temple Mount. That's my theory. At this point in time, because they're 
commonly going to worship at the temple. That's still very common. It goes on until they're dispersed by persecution. They're meeting regularly at the temple. But they may very well be meeting in other people's homes, and so it's smaller, smaller groups. Possibly. I don't know. Either way, it's a huge group of people, isn't it? That's number one. Number two, what's the other significant statement here? Can't be. Did you all hear what, what Ken said? There, there's no, I love your last word. What was it? There's no drama. <laughs> there's no drama. There's no conflict. There's no arguing going on. There's no fighting going on. Can I just ask you a little question? You ever been in a place like that before? <laughs> yeah, right. You ever been in that place before, even with believers? I mean, this is a stunning statement, friends. This is an absolutely stunning opening to this text. When we're being introduced to a church of people who have all been connected to as an anchor, Jesus Christ. They're enthralled with Jesus. They're anchored to Jesus. And what does it say? Verse 32, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Now some people say on this text, well yeah, but Steve, it's only been a couple of weeks. Please, if you and I gather together every day for a couple of weeks, do you think we'd ever find things to disagree about? And you think we'd start camping on those disagreements? And you think we'd start discussing and de debating on these disagreements? You think? And remember what chapter 2, verses 42 to 47 said, they were getting together only once a week for an hour. Isn't that what it said? No, they were getting together daily. And we have to assume at this point then they're still they're still getting together daily. It's later that they talk about getting together on the first day of the week. We have to assume this is a daily meeting going on. This is a daily gathering going on. And they are of what? One heart and soul. That's a stunning perspective. And what does he mean when he says they're of one heart and soul? You know what that means? It means simply they were captivated by the same thing. That's what it means. They were captivated by the, they were all absolutely enthralled with the same thing. Or perhaps a better way to put it, they were absolutely enthralled with the same person. That's what it's referring to. When it says they are of one heart and one soul. It's a simple, condensed way of saying what Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47 described in detail. They were together. And when they came together, something happened. You know what happened? When they came together with other believers... All they wanted to do is talk about the one they believed. All they wanted to do was to fellowship with one another about the one who saved their souls. All they wanted to do was come together and worship the one 
who took on their sin and absorbed the wrath that belonged to them and gave them all His righteousness. That's what it's referring to. I don't know about you, but to me, that vista is stunning. Today in the church, we, we find ourselves, and I hear this regularly, talking about how that will be really cool in glory when it will be that way. <laughs> That's what we hear, right? Oh, in glory, won't it be wonderful? We'll, we'll all be together and we'll all be singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. These people are that. That's what they're doing. These people, that's where they're at. They're not like we are today saying, oh, wow, for that day. These people are saying, no, today. <laughs> your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There, right now this morning, there's... there's there's glorified people in heaven, multitudes of people in heaven doing what? Praising God, right? Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Right now, as we sit here and I stand here this morning, that's happening right now in glory. For these people in that day, there were people in glory, multitudes in glory, and that was happening in glory. But for these people, it was happening here as well. In Jerusalem, same thing was happening for a couple weeks now. Wasn't it? For a couple weeks now, that's what's been happening in the early church. Now again, please understand something. I just want to take a step back and say, the vast majority of people I hear say, yeah, but Steve, that was the early primitive church. That's not the norm. I agree with the last statement. It's not the norm. But to excuse it because that was the primitive church is very troubling, is it not? Do you not find all the way through the New Testament when someone comes to faith in Christ, they are absolutely enthralled with Jesus? Don't you find that? But don't you find so often in our personal experience I mean, because you certainly have to recognize that Paul and James and Peter and John and and John Mark later on and 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 um, Silas and and uh, Timothy and Titus. You have to recognize that they're the same, aren't they? Aren't they? And they're not new believers, right? They're pretty solid believers, wouldn't we agree? And they sound at least somewhat solid. They sound somewhat mature, don't they? I'm being sarcastic. But today we kind of expect new believers to be, Woo! Jesus! But we expect people who have been saved for a little while to be like, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Don't we? You get my point, don't you? We kind of expect as people as people mature that they kind of get meh, and somehow we think that's maturity. 
we kind of expect that as people mature, if I may be really sarcastic with the Scriptures, we kind of think that as people mature, that they will become steadfast and unmovable and just forget about the always abounding in the work of the Lord. Right? Does that make sense? I mean, isn't that, what, isn't that kind of the way it is? And I think we, I say that to say, I think we do a gross disservice to the testimony of the Scriptures when we do that. The, the, the picture of the Scriptures is a trajectory from being enthralled with Jesus while being anchored to Christ to more being enthralled, to being more captivated. And then as, as the person matures, they become what? More captivated. And then as they mature, they become even more. Why are they becoming more captivated? Because they're learning of Him more and knowing more of Him. The way the typical Christian today lives, it's like, I'm enthralled with Jesus, but then when I get to know Him, I'm not enthralled anymore. You know what that sounds like? It sounds like I meet, I meet um, some famous. I meet, I meet um, Donald Trump for the first time, and I'm just really enthralled. And then I hang out with him for a while. I'm just throwing, I'm, this is not a political statement. I'm just picking a name off the top of my head. And then I hang out with him for a little while. And I start to see all the warts. And I start to see all the personality issues. Not that Donald Trump has any personality issues. But hypothetically speaking. But I start to see all the personality issues start to show up. And before you know it, he starts rubbing me the wrong way somewhat. Right? After a while, he may even start turning into like a cheese grater on my knuckles. But if you've ever had run your knuckles across a cheese grater, you know that's not something you keep doing. You just pull your hand away right away. And I'm still happy I know him. Because he's a pretty important guy, right? But he starts becoming more and more detached from my everyday life, my everyday thinking. I'm not enthralled anymore. Why is that? Because I start to see him for all of his warts and problems. Does that make sense to everybody? We've all been there, haven't we? With people? Repeatedly? Could I just say Jesus doesn't have any warts? He doesn't have any personality problems? He's not obnoxious? Unless you're clinging to your sin. He can get pretty obnoxious then. Sometimes he grabs a whip. Doesn't he? He doesn't have personality problems. But what he does is he has personality different from ours because ours loves our sin. He hates sin. Right? But you know what happens is we start treating him just like we treat everybody else. And it's a sure indication that really we just don't like what he's saying about us. But it evidences itself as if I'm treating him like I treat everybody else as I learn more of them more and more and more 
that there's things I don't like about them. And so they begin to become distant. They begin to fade. Oh, I still treat them nice. I still value them for, for certain things I recognize are good for me. But they become more and more marginalized in my life. They become more and more ignored. And in Christianity, what we do is we consider that maturity somehow. I mean, how buckled is that? We somehow consider that maturity. But here we have these people in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believe were of one heart and soul absolutely captivated with Jesus. Anchored to their Redeemer. It goes on in verse 32, And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Interesting statement at the end of verse 32. A couple of things I want to point out before we actually un unpack it. I want you to notice in verse 32 it says, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. It does not, it, this is not communism or socialism, as some people have said. It doesn't say they didn't own anything, does it? No. It says they didn't consider anything that they owned was his own. So their view, in other words, their view of their property their view changed. Do you see that? Their view was changed. So, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. So their perspective changed. And what this is really important. What caused their perspective to change? The anchor, right? They had Christ, they were anchored to Christ, and the result was being anchored to Christ changed their perspective of everything. Or to put it a different way, their perspective of Christ changed their perspective of everything else. Does that make sense? That, I don't know if you heard what Ken just said, but this is rich. Their heavenly anchor outweighed the earthly anchors. That's an amazing perspective. Isn't it? If I, may, if I may meddle for a second, I want to just challenge us with really important practical perspectives. How would we respond just by way of example, you spent $1,000 on a phone, which I know you didn't do. But you spent $1,000 on a phone, you set it here, and someone came along and their, their, hand, their, their hand or their or their leg caught it and sent it flying, smash, and it's broken. And you didn't have any insurance on it. How do we respond to that? I'm not even getting into the true context of the text. How do we respond to that? Someone hits our vehicle. How do we respond to that? Someone eats into our time. How do we respond to that? 
someone is late or forgets a calendar appointment, how do we respond to that? Another believer does all those things. How do we respond to that? And many others. How do we respond to those things? Again, that doesn't even get into the context here. It doesn't even get into the idea. That's just not even scratching the surface. Because you know the context here is what? It's not that somebody broke something of yours. It's what? It's not mine. I'll sell it to help people in need. It's a radical thought, isn't it? Notice what he says again. And no one said of any of of the things that belonged to him was his own. So the starting point was, this isn't mine. Why would they say that? Well, they'd say that because they know that everything is there. Let me change that. Let me step back. They know that they were what? They themselves were bought with a price, right? Now, if they were bought with a price, that would mean that everything they own, what, say it louder? It's not their own. Because everything they own comes with them. So when they were bought with a price, they understood that everything else came with it. They don't come naked. They come with everything. Their clothes, their house, their property, their cars, their their clothing, their relationships. Everything comes with that purchase. Does that make sense so far? And so they're talking about their stuff differently in light of the one who has bought them. Who has redeemed them. But they had everything in common. Is The idea of everything in common is the idea that they're viewing their stuff, all their stuff, is common. It's not mine and yours. It's common. And why is it common? Because Christ owns it all. It's all His. So then it goes on in verse 33. He shifts off of this for a second and goes back to it later. And with great power, the apostles were given their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. A couple things that you'll notice. First of all, verse 33, and with great power, the apostles were doing something, right? They were giving testimony. They are giving their testimony. That's not testimony. Let me tell you how I got saved. The testimony is about something much more historic and much more basic and yet all life-changing. The testimony is upon the resurrection of Jesus. We're going to get to that in a moment. But first, notice in verse 33 in the beginning, and with great power, the apostles were giving this testimony. Really important words here. What is he referencing when he says, when, when, when Luke records, and with great power, they were giving their testimony? What do you think he was referencing? Okay, he's referencing the Holy Spirit. What passage do you think he's referencing? Any idea? I'll give you a hint. It's in chapter 1. Verse 8. Could you read it, Jim? You don't have your glasses on, do you? How about somebody else read it for him? Okay. There you go. Verse 8. You will receive what? 
power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, right? There it is. Now let me read verse 33 again. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony or witness, correct? This is a fulfillment of chapter 1, verse 8. They are speaking with power. That's not, that, that, that doesn't mean they're, that they're speaking loudly or they're yelling. What that's referencing is Holy Spirit power. They are speaking with the power of the Holy Spirit. What they're declaring is being used by the Holy Spirit to transform lives. It's a fulfillment of the promise. By the way, it's also a fulfillment of earlier in, in chapter 4 when they were praying for boldness. To do what? To proclaim and be witnesses. To proclaim the testimony and be witnesses. And verse 33, And with great power the apostles were given, giving their testimony. And notice what they're giving their testimony to. What was it? The resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Could I just pause on that for one second before we get off of it? It is interesting. If I may take it to modern day, I want to talk to you about the typical gospel presentation that is given today. The typical gospel presentation that is given today, besides the God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, it's this. Do you realize you're a sinner? Christ, what? Died for your sins. And then the next thing that's typically stated is you should receive Him as your Savior. Right? You know in the New Testament, the great emphasis in the New Testament with regard to the Gospel is not that. It's true that He died for our sins. But the emphasis is as you see here. It's on what? The resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now we've talked about that in the past, why that's so important. So I'm not going to camp on that. Because if you, if, if you wonder, you've got to go back to, to our study in, in, in the Gospels. But it's really, really important that we, we see that resurrection is absolutely essential. It is, it is one of, if not the most essential element in, in the whole Gospel presentation. But at the same time, and we see that because we see the emphasis in, in Acts chapter 2 as he's speaking to unsaved people. Here, it's, it's including both speaking to unsaved people as well as speaking to saved people. And what is essential for these apostles to communicate once again? The resurrection. The resurrection is essential. So where do they camp? They camp on the issues of the resurrection. Is it any wonder that's exactly where atheists go all the time? If they can destroy the resurrection, they've destroyed Christianity. Intriguing, isn't it? Resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus. What did Paul say? If Christ isn't resurrected, what? We're the most to be pitied and we're still in our sins. Resurrection. Absolutely essential. The primary defense of Christianity by the apostles is on the resurrection. It should be for us as well. Resurrection should be center in our communication. 
And I would argue he's not just, they're not just speaking to unsaved people, they're also speaking to saved people as well. And, and with great power, these apostles are giving their testimony to, of the resurrection, to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus to saved people as well. Which draws into my thinking. When was the last time I talked to other believers about the resurrection? When was the last time that was the, that was the theme of our fellowship is resurrection? It's an intriguing perspective. And notice what it says in verse 33 as it wraps it up. And great grace was upon them all. Interesting statement. 33 concludes with great grace was on them all. Not just talking about the apostles, but all those gathering together as believers. Great grace was upon them all. Russ and I were talking about this uh, the other day when we got together about how we talk about grace, but we don't, or we, we mention grace. And we may give a, a little pithy saying of what grace is, but we really don't probe its depths and how important it is that we probe its depths. And so we're going to do that briefly here in this text, but real brief. It says here at the end of verse 33, and great grace was upon them all. There was a boatload of grace being poured out on these people in this early church. What does that mean? Well, we know the phrase. I've said it so many times. And Rusty said it a couple weeks ago. Grace is receiving what you what? Don't deserve. And it's absolutely true. But this text demands that we think a little deeper than that. It demands that we're thinking a little deeper than that. When it says here, at the end of verse 33, great grace was upon them all. What is he talking about? Well, in the immediate context, the, the great grace that's upon them is what? The Holy Spirit with power. That the Holy Spirit is moving in their midst, moving in their life, transforming them, drawing them close to Jesus, the anchor, and to one another. That's grace. Because the common way is what? The common way is being caught up in our own little stories, right? Isn't it? The common way of life for all of us to be caught up in our own stories, our own events of our life, the difficulties of our life, and magnifying the difficulties of our life, the struggles of our life, and magnifying the struggles of our life, the joys that come into our life, whether legitimate or not, and magnifying the joys versus the one who brought what he brought into our lives. At which point in time I need to read the quote this in the bulletin. I didn't realize it was going to connect to the message so well. Notice in your quote that I put in the bulletin this week, instead of a river, God often gives us a brook, which may be running today and dried up tomorrow. Why? To teach us not to rest in our blessings, but in the blesser himself. You see, our stories are, one, are stories of what? The difficulties and the blessings. The struggles and pains and the various blessings that come into our lives. Great grace was upon these people. And it was what? It was pointing them not to the blessing. Blessings. It was pointing them to who? The blesser. And they were enthralled with the blesser. That's great grace. Because they don't deserve Jesus. They don't deserve to be blessed. They don't deserve the Holy Spirit. 
They don't deserve the Holy Spirit with power. They don't deserve the fellowship they have. They don't deserve the resurrection life. They don't deserve to be of one mind. That never happens. And one soul, that never happens. They don't deserve any of this, friends. They didn't deserve the perspective they had on their property. And I'm just pulling all this right out of the little context we have. Great grace was upon them. What's the great grace? The greatest grace was what? That they, they were seeing Jesus for who He really is. And it's causing them to do something they certainly don't deserve to do. And that's to repent and turn to Jesus. And it's transformed their view of their stuff. Because they're being caught up in the One who was resurrected. And they didn't deserve Him, nor to be caught up in Him. Verse 34. There was not a needy person among them. Wow, wouldn't that be something? <laughs> but Why? For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. That was the end of 34 and 35. No one was in need in this church. This is the outflow of being of one mind and one soul in Christ. Is they began to see their property in a totally different light. But they also began to see the people in the midst of their congregation in a different light. Did they not? They started to see the anchor. They started to love the rope or the chain that was connecting them to the anchor. And they started to see by the, the power of the Spirit at work in them that there were a whole lot of other ropes or anchors on that same or ropes or chains, I mean, on that same anchor. They started looking at the, at the other chains or ropes. They started looking up. Wow, he's connected. Oh, he's connected. Oh, he's connected. Oh, he's connected. And he start, they started, as a result, because they're enthralled with the anchor, they, their minds began to change with regard to those who were connected to the anchor. As it happens, if I change the metaphor, when there's a vine and, and you're grafted into the vine, you start to recognize that there's other people grafted into the vine. And because you're enthralled with the vine and grafted in, and someone else is grafted in, they are enthralled with the vine too. Well, if they're enthralled with the vine and I'm enthralled with the vine, we're both going to be enthralled with the vine. One mind, one soul. Does that make sense? And it's all by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the result is if I'm enthralled with the vine, or in this case, the anchor, and they're enthralled with the anchor, you know what? Those two people are going to do what? They're going to focus on the anchor or the vine. And that means it's going to evidence itself in the way they live and the way they speak. Won't it? It has to, doesn't it? And we would all agree with that, right? Whatever our anchor is, Whatever the vine is that we're seeking life in, 
we end up being enthralled by that, and we find other people enthralled with that as well, guess what we do? We talk about it. Now, you may not know this because none of us here are rich, but in more rich circles, they find their life, I'm, I'm being general, but I know they're, they're heterogeneous, they're all different, but I'm being general, so just for sake of discussion and conservation of language, I'm going to, I'm going to be general. But a lot of rich people are enthralled with their riches, and being enthralled with their riches, they're enthralled with the investments that they do with their riches. Does that make sense so far? And what do they do then? They find other people that are enthralled with their investments and their riches as well, don't they? And they form clubs. <laughs> and they get together in those clubs all the time. And what do they talk about? They talk about football? They talk about investments. They talk about money, don't they? Does that make sense? And it's not just that. We do it with everything, don't we? It's easy to talk about those outside of us. But we do the same thing, don't we? Of course we do. Everybody does. We talk about and we connect with those who are enthralled with the same thing we're enthralled with. That's what we find here. But the difference is, their vine, if I use the vine illustration, is alive. Resurrection of the dead. Everybody else's vine is dead. Whether it's investments, sports, leisure, whatever it may be. All the rest of them are dead. But this one's alive. And it's giving them life. Verse 34 and 35 their lives are changed. Their thinking is changed. It's being informed by their anchor, by the vine, by Jesus. And so as a result, it says, and by the way, again, it's not commanded anywhere in Scripture to do this, but what these people are doing is they're selling their property. For what purpose? To take care of people who have an anchor or a rope to the, to the anchor. They have a, I'm sorry, they have a rope or a chain to the anchor. And because those people are enthralled with Jesus, they want to help them. And as a result, it starts out by saying there was nobody needy in the whole group. But again, it's not commanded anywhere in Scripture to do this. And I would argue this text is not saying that they're selling, like, I have this house that I bought, and I'm selling this house, they don't have anything else, now they don't have any place to live. And they sell my house, and I give all the money so they take care of the poor, and now I'm homeless. That's not what it's talking about. The picture is more... And it's that way in that day as well as it is in this day. Many people would own various properties. Maybe they own a number of houses and they rent them. There was a lot of renting going on that day. Or they own a lot of farms. And they rent them out to people who can't afford a farm. And they make money off of it. Sharecropping, for example. Even that day, that was very, very common. There were extreme extremely poor people in the church and they were extremely rich people. God saved both. And the people who had properties, plural, houses, farms, plural, they were taking the plurality of these things and they were selling them. Why? Don't miss it. It's not because they were doing it to take care of the poor. That's the result. They were doing it because they were enthralled with the anchor. They were enthralled with the vine, with, with, with the vine that gives them their life. 
how could they how could they but love other people who are connected to Jesus They brought the proceeds of it and they brought it to the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. The, the idea was the apostles distributed it. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Of course, without the Holy Spirit, they wouldn't have loved Jesus either. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Jim, you, you, you're knocking out of the park. The point, the point I would argue that Acts is doing from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 28 is that very thing. What Acts is presenting and challenging us with, if this, like chapter 2 through 4, is not evident in us, it has to draw into question something. Yes. We need, we, yes, no question. We need, we need to ask the Lord to change our hearts, no question. But I think oftentimes it needs to go behind that. And we need to start asking a question, why isn't the Holy Spirit at work at, in us this way? This is a really important issue. Why isn't the Holy Spirit at work us in this, this way? And, and, and I think that that's the rub. If I may jump out of Acts for a second, or you want to say something else, go ahead. Good question. Do we not grieve the Holy Spirit? Yes, we do. However, however, we also need to take into account something else that's much bigger than this. And what I'm trying to say on this, we're taking a step outside of Acts for a second, but it's really good. Do we, does the Bible tell us we can grieve the Holy Spirit? Absolutely it does. Does the Bible in any way Im, or Im, uh, uh, state or imply that we can continually or or for huge chunks of time grieve the Holy Spirit, I would say no. I know that's a radical thought for some people. But I go back again, for example, I'm just giving as an example, it's many places in the Scriptures, but, but Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 is pretty clear when he says, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began the good work in you will what? Continue to perfect you until the day of Jesus Christ. Too often, we fall into the trap of thinking that somehow, and I'm not saying you're saying this, Jim, but we can grieve the Holy Spirit and continue to grieve the Holy Spirit and yet still be connected to the vine. No. No. Because the Spirit is not impotent in that way. Can we grieve the Holy Spirit? Yes. When we grieve the Holy Spirit, what does the Holy Spirit do? Chapter 12 of the book of Hebrews. What does He do? He calls the repentance and disciplines us. Correct? He disciplines us. What do truly saved people do when the Spirit disciplines us? We repent and we, and as a result, we yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness. We can't miss it. And, and when we hear fruit, it ought to help us to track directly back to Galatians chapter 5. When the contrast is established between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And what happens if our lives are, are constituted by the works of the flesh? You will not see God. That's what it says. Doesn't it? On the other side, 
The fruit of the Spirit is something that the Lord does bring, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit does bring into our lives. That being said, there's no question what you're saying, Jim, is absolutely correct. We can grieve the Holy Spirit, and we do. Next chapter, Ananias and Sapphira, if they're truly saved, they grieve the Holy Spirit, but I don't think they were saved. I would suspect many people would say, well, yeah, they're probably saved and they were disciplined. They weren't disciplined, they were destroyed. They didn't get an opportunity to repent, did they? We haven't gotten to the story yet, but we know it. We have to remember, not all Israel is Israel. Not all the church is the church. Very crucial that we understand this. Can we grieve the Holy Spirit? Yes, we can. Do we grieve the Holy Spirit? Yes, we do. But when it's ongoing, it calls into question, do we have the Holy Spirit? It has to draw that question into our minds. Do we have the Holy Spirit? Because the Scriptures don't allow any wiggle room to this idea that we can have the Holy Spirit and be unchanged and remain unchanged. can't be. It cannot be. But yes, we need to beg, we need to cry out to God and say, God, please have your Spirit work in us, right? I need your Spirit to be at work in us. But we're reminded again what? The Bible says if we seek Him, we will find Him if we seek Him with all our heart, right? Same idea. We find that kind of theme everywhere. So we have here that they brought the, the money to the apostles and it was distributed to each as any had need. Verse 36, thus Joseph, and what, what, what Luke does here is he uh, gives a brief introduction to a person who's later going to take on a massive role in, in the book of Acts. So now it's just an introduction. Thus Joseph, who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, and it's important, he's an encourager, he spends his time encouraging people, and that encouraging people isn't, ah, oh, Rusty, you're doing great. That's not what encouragement means in the Scripture. You know what encouragement primarily means? It means this. Rusty is undone by his sin. He's devastated. He's just a puddle of repentance. An encourager is someone who comes alongside Rusty and says, hey Rusty, let's grow. Let's go. I want to help you grow. I want to point out what the Scriptures say. I want to help you learn of Jesus. I want to bring you to the fountain of living water so that you can enjoy Jesus once again. That's who Barnabas is. One heart, one soul. Absolutely. He's a Levite. And by the way, if you know about the Levites in the Old Testament, can the Levites own property? No, they can't. But he's a Levite. Intriguing, isn't it? He's saved. He's recently been saved, whether it was Day of Pentecost or a daily thing or the, the, the storyline we saw where 5,000. Either way, he's a new believer. Correct? He was a Jew. He was a Levite. You'll notice the next statement. He's a native of Cyprus, which tells us two things, two potentials with regard to this owning a property. In the Old Testament, the, the, the law does not say you can't, if you're a Levite, you can't own any property anywhere. It tells you you can't own any property in the country of Israel, among the Israelites. 
You are not given an inheritance among the Israelites. He could very well have gotten some money and bought something in Cyprus. Remember, Levite is a blood issue. doesn't mean he's fulfilling the role of a Levite. But he's a Levite, but he lives in Cyprus. He could very well own property in Cyprus. The other possibility is, as in most of the laws of the Old Testament, they fell by the wayside pretty quickly, didn't they? So it could very well be that they just ignored this and for years and years and years and decades and decades and centuries maybe they were owning property. We don't know either way. The point of the, of the text is he's a Levite and he owns property. He's a native of Cyprus, which is an island out in the Mediterranean. And this person, Barnabas, is put up as an example of how the church was functioning. What does he do? He sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So what we have now is this person, Barnabas, who's set up as an absolute contrast to who? Ananias and Sapphira. He is enthralled with Jesus. He's captivated by Jesus. He is absolutely consumed with his Redeemer. The result is being consumed with his Redeemer. He is driven to care for others who are captivated with their Redeemer. He's, he's connected to the anchor. He's absolutely captivated with the anchor. He's driven by that being captivated by the anchor to care for others who are, who are in difficulty, who are captivated by the anchor. This is not excluding caring for the poor outside the church, but it's focused on those that are captivated by Jesus. I will say this, and I'm just going to say it for a second. Sometimes people are in the church and they're poor, and the reason why they're poor is because they're captivated by Jesus. Well, maybe sometimes, yeah, right? Especially when there's persecution going on. But sometimes it's because they are making really, 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 really bad choices. Does that make sense? And they're unrepentant for their bad choices. That's not what's taking place here. I don't think the Scriptures ever argue person in your church, person A in your church is making really bad choices and they're in poverty as a result, but they're refusing to make good choices. It, take care of them. No, the, the, the being in bad way and making bad choices is evidence of something. Is it not? It's, evident that, it's evidence that they're not captivated by Jesus, their anchor, their vine. They're captivated by something else. Do we sell our property and take care of them, even though we're captivated by Jesus? No! Because they're probably experiencing the what? Chapter 12 of Hebrews. The discipline of the Lord. And sometimes people need to go through the discipline of the Lord. Now, that's not an excuse for us not to take care of one another. The point is not, and we miss the point in this text, 32 to 37, if we, if, if we think this. If we think like so often people say we've got to take care of the poor, then we miss the whole point. The point of the text is not that they cared for one another. It is not that they sold their property. The point of the text is all that is evidence of something greater. They're enthralled with the resurrection. They're enthralled with the resurrected one. They're captivated by the One who has saved them, who has taken them from death to life. They're captivated. They're consumed with the One who stood in their place. 
All these things are merely evidence of that. That's it. It's just evidence. If you get consumed with the evidence, you miss the whole point. And that's where people go all the time. The point of the storyline is Barnabas and the apostles and the people of this church in Jerusalem have the power of the Holy Spirit upon them and they're consumed with the Redeemer. And so they're speaking boldly and ministering boldly. Because both are here, right? Speaking boldly and ministering boldly. But it's based upon being consumed with Jesus. And that's set up in absolute contrast for next week with Ananias and Sapphira who are consumed with something else. As a result, they don't have the power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to see that next week. The point of the text is as we described it. So the point is, as we think about it and stop our message and go to communion in just a second, is this. What's your anchor? What's, what's your vine? What vine are we grafted into? Are we really grafted in? This goes back to what Jim and I were talking about briefly. What vine are we grafted into? What, what anchor are we connected to? Where are we? Personally. Are we redeemed? Is the Spirit with power? Because he pro- remember, He promised it. If we're truly redeemed, we'll have the Spirit with power. Will we not? Is it not promised? Do we need to ask for it? Well, yes. The most powerful prayers, we talked about in our discussion on prayer, the most powerful prayers and the prayers of faith that we can pray are what? Prayers with regard to what God has promised. He promised the Spirit to work in believers with power. Do we need to pray for that? Absolutely. But as we pray for that, if you don't see that going on, you need to start asking yourself a much bigger question. That is, why not? You see, asking the Spirit for the Spirit to work us with power, but not asking the questions, why isn't He, begs the question, what's going on? Because He promised it. If the Spirit's not at work with power in us, the minimum is we have repentance to be involved in. At minimum. And it may very well be if it's going on and on and on that we may not even be saved. I know that's a hard message to say in a church, because especially a church our size. If it's, if it's, if it's 10,000 people, we could say what? Oh yeah, there's got to be some unsaved people here, right? But it's uncomfortable in our small little church to say, well, maybe there's some unsaved people here. But I think in every church there are. There are unsaved people. In every church. Even the most solid of churches. And I think we need to ask ourselves, if the Spirit's not at work in me with power, and it evidences itself in these kind of ways. I'm speaking boldly. Is that not there? I'm repenting. I'm craving to minister with other believers and to other believers. I'm craving ministering to unsaved people. The perspectives on my life are being changed by the Holy Spirit. And the things I once valued, I don't value anymore. Or I value for a totally different purpose. For His kingdom. For His glory. For His fame. For His namesake. If that's not what's going on, we need to start asking ourselves some really important questions. 
These are painful, yet hopeful things, aren't they? Because He promises to save us to the uttermost. He promises to give us the Spirit. And we have evidence that He does in the Scriptures. It's very clear. I think too often we have created a truncated Christianity. But the Christianity presented in the Scriptures, I think, too often is radically different. Radically different. It challenges me. And so could I just ask us to come to prayer and pray that the Spirit will be at work in our lives? Whether it's for salvation or for, for, for just a new warmth, a new heart, a new captivating of Jesus. Because we are prone to wander, aren't we? God, change my heart. Help me. And then we'll go to communion and we're going to worship God at communion. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Because we are, as we just said, prone to wander. We are prone to leave the God we love. We need Your Spirit to work in us. Help us. Protect us from being like that, like that vine that shoots up in a day, that plant that shoots up in a day and then and then the cares of the world break in and we wither away. Or any of the other three. Lord, I pray that You will work in our lives so that we will be the plant by Your Spirit, by Your power. We will be that plant that grows and flourishes and yields much fruit. So we ask You to glorify Yourself and change us. Protect us from a truncated Christianity. Help us with Your great power. In Your name I pray. Amen.